0: Do you want to ask, or do you dare ask, or do you think about? I think that in our culture we tend to want to know what job they do, what's their trade. For people in the time of our Lord, for people of the Jewish culture certainly, and as I understand it, and people of most of the cultures of that time, the first question people asked was, who is your father? (laughs) What tribe are you from? What's your ancestry? And so when Matthew introduces the Lord Jesus Christ to us, he starts off in chapter 1 by doing his ancestry. Who's his father? Who's his great-grandfather? His great-grandfather? Going back, all the way back to Adam. In chapter 2, Matthew answers a question, the second question that would be in the mind of the people who met somebody for the first time. And perhaps that's more... The type of question we would ask, where are you from? Where were you born? Um, now, I was born in Toronto. When I was nine months old, I had the good sense to say to my parents we were leaving this place. And our family moved to Halifax. And I lived in Halifax and spent a few summers in St. John, New Brunswick. Lived in Sorel, Quebec, just downriver for here, from here for two and a half years studied in New Brunswick, studied in the States, now live in Quebec for the last 50 years. And our Lord Jesus Christ has this very special thing in his life that within the first two years, easily within the first two years of his life, he was associated with four different locations. And every one of those locations is an answer to prophecy, was predicted in the Old Testament, that he would be associated with those places. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in Matthew chapter 2. Let's start off by reading the first 12 verses. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... They departed to their own country by another way. Our Lord's identification with his people, four locations, four prophecies. Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to start off with a little introduction. We're going to look at the theme of humility, but greatness. Bethlehem, verses 1 to 12. Nazareth, verses 20, 23. We're not going to follow the, the chapter verse by verse, but we're going to jump around a little bit. And thirdly, we'll look at identification and suffering, Egypt, verses 13 to 15, Ramah, verses 14 to 19, and we're going to draw a conclusion. In the introduction we need to remember that Matthew was written for several reasons, it's a short biography of Jesus. Um, to prove especially to the Jews that Jesus is the King. And Matthew works very hard at showing how our Lord Jesus uh, accomplished many different prophecies. And to demonstrate that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies uh, with the coming King and Messiah. In chapter 2, Matthew shows how Jesus fulfills four different prophecies from the Old Testament. And in fulfilling these four prophecies, Jesus is connected to four widely dispersed geographical locations. And I put a map up here um, that you can see we're on slide 8 I guess or 6 6. So you can see the locations uh, widely dispersed, Bethlehem, um, Rama, Egypt and uh, Nazareth. Something like 800-900 kilometers during that, all those areas. On slide... Uh, let's talk now about humility and greatness. Bethlehem verses 1 to 12. And remember that Bethlehem, if we look at the next slide here, is Bethlehem is here, it's about eight miles, six miles south of Jerusalem. Now this is a quotation from Micah, the book of Micah chapter 5, five written some 700 years before the birth of Christ. We say that Micah is little Isaiah. Um, David the great king had been born in Jerusalem, and Jewish writings, the rabbis, the great Jewish scholars, before the birth of our Lord, had interpreted Micah to mean that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And Matthew chapter 2, taken together, taken as a whole, contrasts Christ's legitimate kingship with Herod's illegitimate claims. Herod is there. He claims to be king of the Jews. Jesus is born as king of the Jews, and Jesus' kingship is shown as legitimate, where Herod's is not. Now Micah had prophesied just before Assyria would take Israel into captivity and he predicted that despite this exile, despite this terrible uh, taking of the people, the killing of millions of Jews undoubtedly in northern Israel that a great king would be born in Bethlehem and he would deliver his people from bondage and from exile. Um, Now this might be a short There might be a short-term accomplishment of this prophecy in Israel's past history. Uh, Kings were raised up, uh, Hezekiah, Josiah particularly. Uh, Many of the Jewish believers who still lived in the northern part of the kingdom, even after the Assyrian exile, uh, came to Jerusalem to worship during those periods. But the following phrase in this prophecy points to a greater king, whose coming forth is from old From ancient days. David was a great king, Solomon was a great king, Hezekiah, Josiah, but they didn't come from old. They had a beginning. They were born. People knew who their father was. People knew who their mother was, their grandfather, their grandmother. Ancestry, geology was important to these people. But this coming king, prophesied by Micah, accomplished in the person of our Lord, comes forth from old, from ancient days. He has no beginning. He's eternal. So this greater king would deliver his people. And in the context here, these wise men that come from the East show that the deliverance will not only be to the Jews. How how fascinating that Matthew, which is the gospel to the Jews, more than the other four, is the only one of the evangelists who tells the story of these wise men who came from the East and who were associated with the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad for that because I'm not a Jew. I'm not part of God's people of the Old Testament. And these wise men from the East, astrologers, not kings, we don't know how many there were. We don't know what their names were. In the cathedral in Cologne, I believe it is, in Germany, their skulls are there. At least, they say that they're skulls. And they are placed so that they're looking to the East. Um, I don't know, I'm not sure that's really their skulls. But these um, wise men who perhaps were influenced by Daniel because they come from the area where Daniel was the chief of all wise men some 500 years previously. Messiah ushers in the age of salvation for all peoples. Now Bethlehem was a tiny village, humble, in an area where shepherds A much despised group of people raised sheep for wool, meat, and temple sacrifices. One of the great hypocrisies of the time was that these shepherds in that area, where there was good pasture, um, were very important because hundreds of thousands of sheep were sacrificed every year in the temple. And so these shepherds were essential for the temple worship. But they were despised. They were always unclean ceremonial. Shepherds could never enter the temple. The witness of a shepherd was not accepted in court. They were unclean. Um, Our Lord's birth in Bethlehem demonstrates his identification with us, ordinary people. Not the kings, the leaders, but humble workers. Not born in Jerusalem, born in Bethlehem. I've been team teaching through the book of Joshua recently and um, there have been some passages which have been hard to read in public. Um, I don't know if you've read Jer- Joshua recently. Um, about, about three months in that particular church, I met with the leaders, and I said, gentlemen, I'm glad that God's word is read public- publicly in this church. Do you know that in the early church, I was reading recently in church history, that in the church of Ephesus, There was one bishop, 10 elders, 70 lectors, and the lector's job was to read God's Word in public. (laughs) That's how important that was in that church. 70 people who were trained and whose job was to read God's Word in public. I said to the church, I dare say to them, look, we're not doing a very good job reading God's Word in public. There are commas where people don't pause, there are periods where they don't stop. they seem to be in a real hurry to get through that chapter so they can say things that are more important. Let's, let's read God's word publicly well. And the very next time I preached in that church it was in a book, of, in a chapter of the book of Joshua where there are 47 place names and I couldn't pronounce any of them. So I was somewhat humbled. And, and, and as I was teaching through that it 14, 15, 16, 17 Joshua where they have all these place names as the As the country is divided out between the different tribes, why did God put all those names of little villages? The majority of them, we have no idea where they were. Can't find, the archaeologists can't find them, can't identify them with certainty. Why did God put those names in there? And I was thinking, they were in small villages, small towns. Not well-known, lost to history. But God knew who they were. God knew who his people were in that place. And Jesus being born in Bethlehem, I think, shows us our Lord's identification with those of us who are small, humble, not famous, not well-known, just ordinary people. When we're gone, there might be a short notice in the newspaper, and that's it. Our Lord Jesus identified Identify with that type of people, with us. Now, our Lord's deliverance from the massacre of the infants in Bethlehem points back to Moses being delivered from the massacre of the Jewish infants in Egypt. It's not a coincidence. Moses was born. All the male children were being massacred. He was saved from that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. All the babies were 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 killed. He was delivered from that. that. That parallel is very important. Jesus is the new, new Moses, the greater Moses, who will deliver his people, who will finish that work. But if Bethlehem speak to us about, speaks to us about humility, it also speaks to us about greatness. Because King David, God's chosen servant to, live, to lead and to deliver his people, came from Bethlehem and he was after God's heart. And God promised in the Davidic covenant that someone from David's lineage would always reign, would sit on his throne. And the day is coming when Lord Jesus Christ will come back and he will occupy David's throne forever and ever. So Bethlehem speaks also about our Lord's greatness. Micah's like clearly, prophecy clearly indicates how great this newborn king is, greater than David or Solomon, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now what does Bethlehem mean? What's the meaning of the word Bethlehem? House of bread. Sorry? House of, bread. house of bread, very good. Bet is the Greek letter, equivalent of B, is made like the shape of a, whore, a house, Like that. And Beth means house, and lamb is the Hebrew word for bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. But the new king who was born in Bethlehem, he's the bread of life. As physical bread satisfies, satisfies our physical hunger, our spiritual hunger can only be satisfied by he who came down from heaven and who is the bread of life. Let's look now at Christ's humility and his greatness as we look at Nazareth in verses 20 through 23. We're going to read them. Chapter 2, of Matthew, verses 20 through 23. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child, what was spo- so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. And in the next slide I have a, a map here. And Nazareth to the extreme north just north of the Sea of Galilee a long distance from Bethlehem where he was born. Now King uh, Herod the Great had just died and Archelaus was trying to take over the greater portion of his kingdom. He was one of King Herod's sons by one of King Herod's many wives. There's quite a struggle going on. Um, many of Herod's sons and nephews and uh, went to Caesar, to went to Rome to meet with Caesar to argue who was going to get the kingdom. And before um, Archelaus was much hated by the Jews because on the very, at the very time when they were being forced to mourn. King Herod the Great. Nobody was mourning. They were glad he was dead, but they had to mourn, pretend they were mourning. Um, Some of the Jewish people were protesting that the high priest that had been named by Herod the Great was not acceptable because of his lifestyle, uh, rightly so. And um, they were protesting. And Archelaus, who was not yet named to take the place of his king, Caesar had not yet decided, he sent his soldiers into Jerusalem, or rather the soldiers that were already in Jerusalem, they went to the temple and, and killed 3,000 Jews in the temple, around the temple. Uh, at least that is the figure that is given to us by Josephus, Josephus, the Jewish historian. So you understand that everybody was afraid of Archelaus. His father had been terrible. Archelaus was worse, and actually some eight, year, eight years later, Caesar actually removed him from power, because he had been doing such a bad job was being so violent. So Joseph learns that uh, Archelaus is taking over. He's near to Bethlehem. He decides not to return to Bethlehem, not to return to that area, but to go to the extreme north as far as he can be from Archelaus and still be in Israel. Now, this is difficult. What does it mean that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? Um, Some would say that refers to the Nazarene vow, where people couldn't cut their hair and uh, had to eat milk and honey. uh, uh. But Jesus was not an ascetic like John the Baptist. Jesus was not a Nazarene. There's no reason to think that he took a Nazarene vow. And notice that um, in chapter 2 verse 23 so that which was spoken of, the prophet, uh, with an S, the plural, prophets, not prophet. And um, there's nowhere in the Old Testament which tells us that Jesus will be born in Nazareth. And no, it's not referring to being a Nazarene. What does it mean? And most probably it's a reference to the Hebrew word Nazar, uh, which means branch, which we find in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 52. He, he grew up as a tender branch. It's a messianic title. It's used by Jeremiah Je- Jer- Jeremiah. Jeremiah, and by Zechariah. Uh, but the idea is clear here. Nazareth was not a city with a good reputation. Uh, in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 46, Nathanael asks, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> It was a place that had a reputation. They were country bumpkins, they were backwoodsmen. They spoke with a strange, uneducated accent. They lived far from the temple, the center of Jewish government in Jerusalem. So our Lord's identification with Nazareth is another sign of humility. He identifies with us in our humble lives. He was raised and lived far from the temple, the center of Jewish intellectual life. But but our Lord here not only is humble but he's great because he's identified with he who will be the Old Testament Nassar or root or branch. Isaiah 11 put it this way, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. this sounds a bit strange to us. Um, I worked in the woods when I was studying. Uh, got a summer job as a boucheron. Uh, what do you call them? What, what? Lumberjack. lumberjack yeah. Um, I've had some hard jobs in my life. I'll tell you, being a lumberjack is the hard. Being a lumberjack is the hardest job I ever had. Um, I know that if you cut a tree down, that is dead. It doesn't grow up from the stump. That just doesn't happen here. But in Israel there are trees, and particularly the olive tree, that if you cut a tree down and leave the stump, it'll grow up in the stump and come to life again. If you visit um, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, your guide will tell you that these are the trees that were there when Jesus was here to pray. That ain't true. That is not true. The Romans cut down all the trees in the whole area to crucify the children of those who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. However, it may be true in this way that probably the trees that are there grew up from the stump of the olive trees that were there when Jesus was there. And so in a sense, it's true. You see references to that in the book of Job. And so Jesus is the branch that grows up from the stump of David. Um, although kingship in Israel is dried out, it's a dried out root. There's no king, hasn't been a king for 586 years. A new branch, a fresh branch, will spring forth. This new king will deliver his people. He will be greater than all the previous kings. All other kings have disappointed us, left us hungering for a better, a greater king. This greater, this better king had been born in Bethlehem and now he will live in Nazareth, he is the branch. Let's look now at our Lord's identification and his suffering and we'll start off with Egypt in verses 13 to 15. So our Lord's identification with Egypt, and uh, you see that on the next slide, slide 27, way down here, some 800, 900 miles to the south west of, uh, of Nazareth. Southwest, again, of, from Jerusalem, from Benjamin, from Bethlehem. So it relates to Jesus' family's flight to and return from Egypt. As Moses was rescued from wicked King Pharaoh's edict to kill all baby boys, Jesus was rescued from wicked King Herod's edict to kill all the children in Bethlehem. And just like Israel, Jesus was sheltered in Egypt and then called out. Theologians today talk a lot about the new exodus. I have some reserves about how far they go on that theme, but uh, it is true that in in his going to Egypt and coming out of Egypt, Jesus is living out what his people, identifying himself with his people Israel who were sheltered in Egypt and then came out later. If you look at greater context in Hosea where this quotation comes from, um, where he said um, out of Egypt I've called my son. Um, Hosea has has spoken about the glorious days of Israel. But then he laments their present apostasy and their exile. And as always in God's ways, um, Hosea ends up, despite his pre- predicting um, uh, apostasy, he predicts exile, he ends up with promising God's restoration. Good news, God never gives up on his people. One day he will be in the mode of exile. Um, R.T. France wrote it this way, this is not just a prophetic accomplishment. It's a classic use of pure typology in the word. The recognition and correspondence between New Testament and Old Testament events based on the unchanging character of the principle of God's working. Um, One of my favorite books which I use most weeks um, written by Veal and Don Carson um, takes every every quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament and gives a good explanation of it. Uh, They say this about this passage, that that Israel had been delivered from Egypt, that Israel would be exiled, exiled there but then restored, and that the child believed to be the Messiah also had to return to Israel from Egypt. That formed too striking a set of parallels for Matthew to attribute them to chance. God was clearly at work Orchestrating the whole series of events. In Matthew, Christ is the new Moses who delivers his people. In Matthew, God's salvation plan through Christ is the new Exodus with the new Passover. Moses delivered his people from slavery, from physical slavery. Our Lord Jesus delivers his people from spiritual slavery, from slavery to sin. Notice how the word son is used here. for Matthew, Christ is God's divine Son, the regal Messiah. In this chapter, the only title that is given to our Lord is Son. It's a Christological chapter. Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm, Psalm 2, um, just to make sure I can quote it in English, I'll turn to it. Second psalm, I believe that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introduction to the whole book of psalms. Psalm 1 talks to us about God's law. Psalm 2 talks to us about God's Son. And those are the themes of most of the book of psalms. And in Psalm 2, the the second, and there's good evidence that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were one psalm in the beginning. Psalm 2 reads this way. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, the holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you." Jesus will be the faithful son, where Israel, who was also the son of God in the Old Testament, was the unfaithful son. So in our Lord's exile to Egypt, he uh, he was identified with his people, the Jews. Like the Jews suffered in Egypt, he suffered by being an exile far from home. When we suffer, we must never forget that our Lord also suffered. We can turn to him in our suffering with complete certitude that he understands us. Now look. let's look at Ramah. I think you know about Bethlehem. I think you know about Nazareth. You probably know something about Egypt. Um, perhaps the place name in this chapter that we know the least about is Ramah, verses 14 through 19. Um, I'll start with verse 16 to save time. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, Who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now Ramah is about eight miles north of Jerusalem. it's as far north from Jerusalem as Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. It's right there. Um, and there are the Jews during the Babylonian deportation in 586 BC, about then. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, his army took most of the Jews from the southern kingdom, took them off to exile. And that's this, this town of Ramah is where the Jews were gathered together while they waited for their exile. And you can find that in Jeremiah chapter 40, if you want to look that up. It means high place, um, a common place name in in Israel. In three rivers, we have Mount Carmel, and if you go take the road from uh, Quebec City to Chicoutimi, there's a bunch of mountains there, and if you go up north, well, there's all types of mountains, Mount Tromlau and Mount Saint Gabriel. All those mountains. Well, Mount was one of those mountains, a high place. And it's interesting that the, the the tie in here with Rachel crying for her children is that Rachel had been buried close to this area, somewhere close to between Bethlehem and Ramah. And Rachel here is symbolically the mother of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 she's shown as weeping as her children are massacred and taking into exile. Later Jewish writers, not inspired writers, but Jewish rabbis, suggested that Jacob buried Rachel there so she could weep for the exiles as they passed by her grave on the road to exile. must remember that Jacob buried his wife Leah, his first wife, in the cavern at Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Isaac's wife had been buried. That's where Jacob buried Leah, his oldest wife, but Rachel was buried somewhere on the road in that general area. But Jeremiah 31 ends with the promise of the New Covenant. The tears shed during the exile will end. And they are climaxed by the tears shed by the mothers in Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come. The exile will soon be over. The true Son of God has come. He will introduce and fulfill the New Covenant, which is promised by Jeremiah. Conclusion. Um, It's marvelous. In the first few months of his life, our Lord was identified with four separate geographical locations. I looked it up as carefully as I could, 816 kilometers between Nazareth and Alexandria in Egypt. Um, Marvelous that our Lord accomplished those prophecies in the first when he's just a baby. When I made a joke about telling my parents I want to move away from Toronto when I was nine months old. I, th- I hope you understood that it was a joke and I wasn't making it up. Um, the mystery of our Lord's being a baby, dependent on his parents, and being the Lord God of Heaven at the same time, I'll never understand that. But Jesus didn't tell his parents to go to Nazareth. He didn't tell his parents to go to Egypt, That worked out in God's sovereign will and God's way of proving that Jesus is who he is by having him being associated with these four geographical areas before he was two years old. Wonderful. No doubt, Jesus is the promised Messiah. It's marvelous that our Lord fulfilled so many different Old Testament prophecies. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus during his life and death. The chance of one person fulfilling only 40 prophecies has been calculated by one in a number that's followed by 157 zeros. My granddaughter is secondary four, she's taking chemistry, and she's asked me to help her understand what a mole is. Do you remember moles in chemistry? Um, six point something by followed by 23 zeros. Is that what it is? Um, I tried to impress her by saying, I remember my chemistry from 55 years ago, um, or more than that, more like, more like 60 years ago. Um, this is a number, that's a big number, six to six point something with 23 zeros after it. This is one followed by 157 zeros. That's only for 4D prophecies. Our Lord accomplished 300 prophecies during his life and death. What evidence? Inspiration of the Bible. Notice how our great Lord is identified with his humble people. Born in Bethlehem, tiny villages, shepherds. He fled for his life to Egypt. Identified with Ramah, which represents the weakness of God's people through 2,000 years of history. He lived in the humble village of Nazareth. Notice how our Lord is identified with his humble people. Do you live with a poor and a humble life? Our Lord identified with you. Are you an immigrant? Have you come to a new country for safety? Our Lord identified with you. Have you suffered loss in your life, and your family? Our Lord identified with you, with me. Do people look down on you because of your origins or the area where you live? Our Lord identified with you. Our great God sent us a Savior, totally qualified to be our Savior. Humble, holy, Qualified, lovely, gentle, understanding our problems. He paid the price for your salvation. My question: do you really love him? Is he your Savior? Let's pray. Lord God, we worship you, we worship your Son Jesus. Great creator eternal God, humbled himself to become a baby, took on humanity, gave up the free exercise of his attributes, lived in poverty, lived through rejection, faithful in presenting your message, faithful in a holy life, cruelly, wickedly, unfairly, judged, and crucified. But oh, he is our risen Lord, and we worship him. And thank you that he fulfilled these prophecies. Thank you that we can be certain that he is the Messiah, that he is our Savior, because he accomplished the prophecies of the Old Testament. Thank you for who he is. Thank you for that he was holy man, fully man, identified with us so he could be a perfect high priest to whom we can come in our time of troubles for forgiveness, for succor, for help. We worship him. Oh Lord, for any person here who does not know him as Savior, who does not love him as he ought, we pray that you will help him to come to Jesus today. We ask this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.